The Constellation, Episode 3 The Studio and the Farm doesn't do social media, except anonymously, for snooping on people. Instead, he sends his friends an audio message almost every week. This one that Carl has just downloaded, he sent at four this morning. Bonjour les Bruxellois, j'espère que tout est vachement bien, et never mind, I'm going out of my mind here. You know Churchill, sorry, our PM is sitting on his ass doing nothing. I'm sure the police are going to come round and lock us up pronto. Or maybe they'll just let us all die. Starting with the old, the poor, the mentally ill, the blacks, the Muslims. Sort of like a eugenics experiment. If you ask me, that Cummings bloke's behind it all. I've been staying in. I've got to take care, I know, but fuck it, sometimes I've got to go out for air. Dave, this guy came round looking for you. I said, I haven't seen you for weeks. Anyway... You know me, I like making calculations. I made this algorithm and I fed in all the numbers, linking corona curves from China to their stock market indices and feeding in European and UK figures, then factoring in Brexit uncertainties, actual Brexit, the inevitable Scottish independence, the probable unification of Ireland, and the possible Welsh exit. And I looked at what the value of the UK as a whole would be in a couple of years' time. Ballpark figure. I'd like to say it's 42, but no, it's a quid. One pound, exactly. So, I made a song about it. Take care. Speak soon. Love this. One pound, ladies and gentlemen, one pound. Everything for a quid. Welcome. Welcome to our glorious island with our royals, Shakespeare and other illustrious dead. Nigel's down the pub and Dave's resting his trotters in shed. At least Boris delivered Brexit, in more ways than one is our Jim will fix it. You must admit it's an exciting rebrand. Welcome, welcome to Poundland. Back at last, our gills and drums and feet and pounds, employment laws. Good riddance, our Great Britain is open for business. Hong Kong and the Humber, Singapore on Thames, even Dyson province to come back again. From Westminster to Hoxton and Soho, it's rocky. Oligarchs are go-go. Pillars of industry, Crymark and TK Maxx, employing slaves and avoiding tax. Selling cheap fashion to the masses, shoes and bags and bread and services. You can have VHS for a quid, 
Contraband. Welcome, welcome to Poundland. Typical Gus, that said Dave, getting into reciting a list and not being able to come out of it. Before Gus's message, Carl had been listening to the radio. He was worried that they were going to be totally shut in, stuck on the bloody 32nd floor. He couldn't imagine not being able to go out. Dave hadn't been out of the house ever since he'd turned up last week. Come on, said Carl, while we can, Let's go out for a walk before everything turns into a pumpkin. I'll show you my studio, okay? As Carl and Dave walk downhill from Place Collignon, the neighbourhood changes, gets shabbier. Dave is surprised. He thought Brussels would be all gleaming steel and concrete. It's not as if they're really far from the centre, but actually he feels more at home down here. They're heading for Carl's studio, 
in an otherwise abandoned office space above the North Station. It's supposed to be a space to revitalise the neighbourhood. An organisation rents it out to artists and other creative types. They charge rent, but the artists are not tenants. On the contract, they're called precarious users, meaning, basically, that they have no rights at all. Gentrification, huh? says Dave. Yeah, it's so difficult not to be part of it if you don't earn much money, says Carl. But I thought your work was going well. Yeah, okay, but even famous artists are often part of the precariat. Big museum shows or biennials don't pay. You have to either be able to sell work or get some kind of public commission or subsidy or something. They cross the Rue de Brabant, which wouldn't look out of place in Morocco. Dave looks around, impressed. Wow, what a vibe. He asks Carl about the studio he'd had in San Francisco. It was a real loft, Carl explains. He was spoiled. He'd started renting it back in the 90s, so it was dirt cheap. He should have bought it back then. When Carl had moved away, he'd tried to pass it on to some friends who could club together so that they could afford the rent, which was obviously going to take a hike. But the landlord was having none of it. He told them he'd found a a more dynamic concept. Carl had been to visit last time he was over there. Imagine a kind of YMCA, or student hostel, but for young internet entrepreneurs. They sleep in tiny rooms, more like cells. Just a bed and a wardrobe, not even a bookcase. Who is it said, if you go home with someone and they don't have books, don't fuck them, said Dave. Ah, John Waters, I think. Yeah, one of them's writing software for crowdsourced women-friendly pornography, apparently. But I don't think they have time to fuck. They share a microwave for warming up their takeaways and a bathroom and have a shared workspace with tables and glass fibre internet. That's it. It's called The Hive. $2,500 a month. Jesus, says Dave. And things like that, as absurd as that, are springing up all over the place. But they can't be earning anything like that, these kids. They're just kids, says Carl. No, of course not. They're living on debt, gambling that their startups are going to be bought out by Google within 12 months to pay back their investors. They're walking parallel to the train tracks now, through the red light district, and Dave is surprised to see that even at this hour of the morning there are some women working and a few punters hanging around. One of the guys, walking nonchalantly towards them, whistling to himself as if he's there completely by chance, looks worryingly familiar. Here, quick! Dave grabs Carl and pulls him towards one of the windows. The thin, blonde woman at least 50 years old. Still, thinks Carl, she could be younger than us. Smiles and buzzes them in. A wave of heat and cheap perfume meets them. She sees the expression on their faces. No threesomes. You can take it in turns, okay? She says, looking Carl up and down. Can we just uh, stay here for 30 seconds? asks Dave. There's someone I want to avoid. Uh, je dois uh, éviter quelqu'un. Ten seconds, she says. Un, deux, three. Dave gets his wallet out of his jacket and pulls out some notes. Pounds. 
The woman raises her eyebrows and continues. Zess, Saver, Carl swears and rummages in his bag. Finds his wallet and some euros. Twenty? Forty, he thinks. She stops counting. So, young, what shall we do? She asks Carl, who's caught between his erection and his nose, reacting to the strong smell of perfume and cleaning products that surrounds her. Dave, peering between the curtains, signals the all clear. Dave asks how long she works. Until four, about, she says. Four? Oh yeah, then someone else takes over. That's right. Maybe see you later then. What the fuck was all that about? asks Carl when they're outside. There was someone I really didn't want to see. He's a lawyer from London. Is that why you came over? Is he after you? No, well, not really. I don't think so. I have uh, quite a few reasons not to be in the UK at the moment. And, asks Carl, are you going to tell me? Later, promise. And you owe me 40 euros. Jesus. They enter the Gare du Nord, Nordstation. Everything in Brussels is named twice. It seems half empty and half under construction. They walk down a corridor with derelict shops and offices, and Carl opens one of the doors. Behind an abandoned reception desk, there's a lift, which doesn't react. Shit, again, says Carl, and they walk up to the sixth floor. More musty corridors, past office spaces, some occupied, photocopied notices stuck on the walls. At last, Carl comes to a large yellow door, which he unlocks. Voila, says Carl. But shit, the heating must be off again, it's freezing, sorry. The office space, still with low, false ceilings and remnants of open space office furniture, is large and a bit dingy. In the back half of the space, where the light is better, Carl has installed himself. Bookshelves like at home, tables, a lot of tables, mostly covered in papers or books marked with coloured post-it notes, a desk with a large computer screen and a drawing tablet, a huge printer with a roll of paper. On the wall are some of Carl's prints. Dave is surprised how big they are. He's only ever seen the work on the internet. Carl tells him that he makes things in different sizes for different contexts. He doesn't say markets. Up to A0 sizes for collectors. He can print that here. Then, up to about 3 by 4 metres are for museums. Anything bigger than that is usually made specially for exhibitions, biennials. Almost all the prints are from the Constellation series. It started at art school in the States. He'd been making storyboards for a video and was placing round yellow stickers on the faces of people in photographs. Someone looking over his shoulder had whispered, Baldassari, Baldassari. Bugger, yeah. There was always someone who'd got there first. But then, Carl picked up one of the images where he'd stuck the dots onto a crowd, choosing five or six people at random. 
he got some opaque ink and connected the dots with straight yellow lines. And suddenly it was something else, not a Baldessari, where the removal of the face made you concentrate on the gestures, the actions, the poses of the figures. No, this was a pattern of connections, a geometric form emerging from the shapeless crowd. And this, constellation number one, now lost, was the first in a long and successful series. At first he'd done it just for fun, parallel to his video work, but then a gallery asked for some 2D work to show along the difficult-to-sell media art. They sold out at the opening. Later, he realised it made more sense to make prints rather than one-off collages. He could make an edition of 10 and still ask more or less the same price. He tried to choose images which were from some important historical moment, but not so famous that he'd get bothered about the copyright. A Martin Luther King rally, protests, a 1930s confrontation between fascists and anti-fascists. More recently, the Arab Spring. Of course, these days it was getting easier and easier to source the images. He only needed to Google them. Right now, Carl was working on a new set of prints. He'd found a big school photo from just before the First World War. He'd been trying to find information on the people in it. What happened to them? Basically, when and how they'd died. So he's been making prints of each year after the photo was taken and, with the war, all the men, the boys, get wiped out. Wow, said Dave. Yeah, it's heavy, and of course now, in this situation, it's, well, just a bit... bad taste? I was going to say macabre, but you're right, it really is in bad taste. Fuck, I'll have to show something else. I don't know what to do. It was supposed to be in a show here at the Beaux-Arts. Suddenly, he realised that he was boring Dave, who was standing there shivering. Carl needed to do some work, so he let Dave go back. Bloody hell, that smells amazing, said Carl when he got back to the flat. Dave was sitting on the sofa reading. Carl's jaw dropped. Carl has never seen Dave reading a book. But he doesn't say it. You've been cooking? I was just using up what you had in the fridge. It must be ready by now, said Dave, opening the oven to remove a perfectly formed pie. Wow, it's like MasterChef, says Carl. David? Drug dealer from Sheffield has made a leak and Telegio pie, says Dave, in his best BBC voice. They laugh. Dave apologises even that the puff pastry is not homemade. He found a Turkish supermarket on the way home and bought it from the fridge. I was wondering what to do with all that cheese, said Carl. I still haven't got my head around the cheese here. I try something and I like it and then I forget what it's called. Where did you ever learn to cook anyway? Dave tells him of a former lover, a cook who ran her own restaurant. She'd caught him selling speed to the chefs and hired him to help her with the business. She always came back so hungry that Dave had started to make late-night suppers for her and they weren't up to her standard, so she had to teach him. 
the phone, Carl's landline goes, but Carl lets it go over. There's an answering machine. By the way, asks Carl, did you go back and see our Flemish beauty? Eh? Oh, no, of course not. Did you ever go to the girls there? No, don't answer that, says Dave. He'd walked back the same way, and when he came out of the station, the street was full of police. They were shutting down the red light district because of the virus, remonstrating with the women. Their pimps were keeping well out of it. They're fucked now. In fact, anyone who works in the black economy, cash in hand, is fucked. I reckon she could do with that 40 euros. There's no protection at all for these people. In the end, it's the black workers who make the world go round. After dinner, washing up, Carl remembers the phone call and goes to listen to it. He comes back, phone in hand, looking puzzled. Dave, I think you should listen to this. Hello, Mr. Vance. Here's a message for your lodger. Dave, how are you? You must have been worried about us. The good news is, we were rescued off Lowestoft by the lads from the RNLI. Really heroes those guys are. If you're thinking that's the good news, then, eh, see, we get home and we go to check on the farm. The gate is wide open, the animals have fled, and all the crops are floating around in the three foot of water and you've disappeared. We was worried about you, even paid a visit to your mate. That nut job over in Netheredge, you wouldn't let us in. He was wearing a mask and goggles, he was. Anyway, he didn't know where you were. It was another little bird that told us, course, we won't be seeing each other for a bit. Seeing the situation like, we'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when. But we'll meet again some sunny. What the fuck's all that about? asks Carl. It's like the hit. The hit? 80s film. Spain, flamenco soundtrack, Terence Stamp, mm, Tim Roth, John Hurt. Dave looks blank. It starts with these gangsters singing We'll Meet Again. Don't remember. What happens? Mm, doesn't end well. They all die, I think, except the girl. I think we'd better open a bottle, said Dave, realising that he'd have to tell Carl what was going on. In some financial trouble, and worried about some pending court cases, which we won't go into for the moment, Dave had been involved in organising a large shipment of drugs from Holland in a yacht. They'd been waiting for ages to cross because the weather was so bad. It was windy and it had been raining for weeks. He didn't usually get involved in this kind of thing, and actually he'd promised himself this would be the last time. It was a big deal, worth millions on the street. His cut was for brokering the deals for distribution across the northern towns. He was trying to keep away from the actual product, wouldn't be doing any of the transporting himself. He was just there because he had contacts everywhere up north, as far as Liverpool, York, even Sunderland. He was at home, waiting for the call. He'd had a message two days before that there was a window of calm weather and that they'd attempt the crossing. They should have arrived in Great Yarmouth by now, 
He'd been checking the weather on windy.com and had seen bad squalls in the North Sea. He'd listened to the shipping forecast too, but it was double Dutch to him. He wasn't good on boats. In fact, he was really surprised that Phil and Baz had wanted to do the trip themselves with the Dutch captain. He guessed they just fancied a holiday. So now he was waiting for a phone call. Burger, how long they were taking. Then his phone pinged. A contact from Leeds had sent him a link to the website of the Great Yarmouth Mercury. The police had closed off a section of beach at Hopton. The rumour was that packets of drugs had been discovered that morning by someone walking their dog and that more bags were being recovered. Fuck. And at that moment, Dave's mobile rang. He felt relieved, but only for a second. Hello? Is that Mr Dave? Yes, who's this? Mr Phillips said we should call you if something was wrong. Okay, he thought. News travels fast. Something happened to the boat. What boat? We're in big trouble here. The water is coming in. Hang on, said Dave. Where are you? Who are you? There are three of us here. We work in the farm. We need help. Oh shit, Dave thought. Phil and Baz's cannabis farm. They'd asked him if he could be an emergency contact, in case anything ever happened. He didn't even know where it was. Uh, okay, but where are you? He asks. Here. Two numbers. Dave wrote them down and read them back to double-check. GPS coordinates. Hang on a bit, said Dave. He keyed them into his phone and was relieved to see that it was somewhere near Stoke. He knew that they had a couple of farms, really. Really, they could have been fucking anywhere. Okay, said Dave, I'll be there in about two hours, two and a half maybe. Do you have the key? asked the voice. What key? We can't open the door. You need to bring something, something, to break the lock. Bloody hell, what's going on? thought Dave. Okay, I will. The Google lady guided Dave on a winding journey through the Peak District, around Stoke, and then down some increasingly shitty roads. It had stopped raining, but it was still stormy and it was getting dark. The road petered out at some woods, with just enough space to park a car. Didn't look like a farm to him. You have arrived at your destination, said Lady Google, helpfully. He began to get suspicious. Was someone luring him there for some reason? He hadn't been followed, he was sure of that. There was a hole in the fence around the woods, so he ducked through the wire and followed a path. It wound his way through the trees. The ground was really wet, and he wished he'd brought his wellies. There seemed to be nothing there, just a small clearing. Then Dave saw a concrete structure sunk into the ground. There was a metal door with a padlock. It had started raining again. It took him at least five more minutes in the cold and the rain to find the right angle to work the crowbar between the concrete and the padlock. But in the end, the padlock just went ping and fell off. Dave opened the door. 
Suddenly there was an incredible stench. There's not much difference between the smell of skunk plants and unwashed bodies, and Dave didn't want to investigate which was which. Three guys stood there staring at him, relieved but afraid at the same time. Hi, I'm Dave. Bao, Dan and Tao introduced themselves. What's going on? asked Dave. The water is rising, said Dan. It's already filled up downstairs. Look. Dave followed him through what looked like a serious airlock door, like in a submarine, and down some metal steps. It was dark down there. He shone his torch downwards to see a very large room, completely underwater. Plastic containers, some plants, cables, pipes and broken lights floating around. Shit. This happened in one day, said Bao. It keeps rising up. We tried calling Phil, but he doesn't answer us. We're afraid. Look, said Dave, you better get out of here. I don't know if Phil is coming back. But we don't know where to go. Where are we? We're somewhere near Stoke-on-Trent. Is that in England? Yeah, of course. Jesus, thought Dave. Is that near London? No. Birmingham? Yeah, not far to Birmingham. Dan has cousin in Birmingham. We can go there. Do you have any money? Money? No. We're still working to pay back the journey over here. Mr. Phil has our passports. Do they have, like, a, an office here or something? There was one room that was always locked, they told him. Together, they managed to break down the door by rolling a heavy trolley at it. It was a dusty office with not much inside, but, in the desk, a folder with passports. They were mostly Vietnamese passports. He looks through them and gives the three guys the ones that belong to them. Ah, look, says Tao, this one, Hien. He was here when we turned up, but he got ill and they took him away. So, says Dave, we cleared up, collected their things. I left the other passports there. Then I drove them to Birmingham to this housing estate, waited to check that the cousin let them in. Then I took off out of there. So, you can see why they're pissed off. Animals, he said. The animals had fled, said Carl. Yeah, that's exactly how they treated them, like animals, the bastards. So what did you do then? I was so pissed off with Phil and Baz. They'd kept these guys locked up for months, and they could have drowned. I gave the location to the police. The police? You went to the police? No, of course not. I sent them a piece of paper. Cannabis farm, people smuggling, with the coordinates. Show us where it is, said Carl, bringing his laptop. I remember going to a bunker somewhere around there. Dave showed him on Google Maps. Oh no, it was a different one. Look, he searches. There, it's a museum now. The whole country must be full of them still. So, anyway... You're running away from that. 
I'm not really connected to the farm, but there was all this Charlie washing around Norfolk, and after Stoke, I thought, if Phil and Baz get off that boat, they might come looking for me. Hmm. And then, also I was supposed to testify in London. Testify? Yeah, about the bank. Where you worked? But that was years ago. Yeah, but that's another story. Let's have another drink. <laughs>